This is SeekBytes, the software engineering podcast by Seek.com. Join our experts as they share their thoughts and tips on mastering the craft of code. From career advice to technical deep dives, SeekBytes is the podcast for software engineers by software engineers. Today we have two new people joining us on our podcast, Willem Lark and Seamus Carney. Seamus, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, my role at Seek is as a senior software engineer. Um, I'm on the hire side, so mostly dealing with uh, people and organizations who want to post ads rather than people who are looking at getting gainful employment. Um, I've been at Seek for almost five years. I came in through the software graduate program. Um, it's been a fantastic half decade. Looking forward to many more years. And how did you end up at Sieg? Well, I actually worked for almost 10 years in IT support, doing technical like hardware support as well as sysadmin, network admin kind of stuff um, for companies like Telstra, Suncorp, a bunch of big tech companies. Um, I always wanted to go to uni and study and do something a little bit more challenging than what I was already doing. Um, I actually enrolled at RMIT to study game design and specifically animation. And then by the time I actually got to the uni, had slight changes of plan and ended up doing comp sci, which was a pivot and a half. Um, yeah. And then towards the end of my degree, did a little bit of work in games um, for universities in uh, what, what's called serious games. So like games for neuroscience and stuff like that. Um, and then happened to, someone mentioned that Seek was hiring for a graduate program. I, it's the only role that I applied for and I got it. And so I wasn't planning to leave games or to leave the path that I was on because I was working towards academics, doing a thesis and stuff like that. But uh, the money came calling. Wow. What's, what's that like going from game development to, to well, essentially it's more web development sort of stuff now? Because I've been learning a little bit of game stuff at the moment and it feels like a different world. It is. It is very much a different world. I mean, the obvious things like Seek does a lot of functional programming. Games are very OO just by design, like the the tools like Unity and, and uh, Unreal Engine and stuff like that. The languages that they write and you tend to do a lot of OO stuff. So that's like a big paradigm difference um, in terms of the ways of working. But I think the biggest difference or the biggest similarity between what we do at Seek and games would be if you worked in mobile. So if you're in iOS or in Android, you've got like a self-contained ecosystem that has your entire like your front end, your back, like everything that your app needs to do is entirely built within this one IDE that the, the company provides for you. So like uh, Xcode, for example, for iOS. Uh, and that's almost a one-to-one -one parallel with how games work. You've got like many different windows. Some are just like file organizations. Some of them are your view window and stuff like that. So people who work in iOS could probably pivot very, very easily into working on a game engine. Wow, that's super cool. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Will? Um, who are you? Where are you from? What What's your team? What do you do? Yeah, sure. Yep, I, I am Will. Um, I, I'm in the web production team at the moment. And yeah, we, we kind of do mostly static pages, mini sites. And we're also handling all of the, the high graph stuff, uh, the, the CMS that we're kind of putting together for Seek to use, um, which will really help just so... Um, marketing teams can go in and make their own pages essentially. It's headless, so it doesn't have a front end connected to it. It's just kind of the data side. And so we're setting up all the schemas for how a page 
models should look and how articles should kind of be filled and what sort of data that we need to fill. Um, and yeah, so we've been setting that up and also kind of creating a somewhat of like a page builder-esque sort of thing as well for, for pages. Um, so the marketing, marketing team at the moment, uh, we've been focusing on the Asia side. Uh, they can kind of just go in and make their own pages without any, any dev or minimum, minimal dev help. In my team, we just we don't have a lot of uh, we don't have a lot of very intense testing because most of the things we make are static pages and some of the mini sites. Um, so what is your opinion on Datadog? So, Will, you were asking about Datadog. Um, Raina, have you had much of a chance to use Datadog? Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, our team uses Datadog quite extensively. So Datadog is a platform, a third-party service that we use to hook up our metrics to. So our applications emit just metrics and stuff about our application's performance. And then Datadog just kind of has a really powerful way of showing those metrics like in real time. And it's also got like a bunch of other features like monitors that you can um, send alerts to PagerDuty if something goes off um, and you need to know about it. Um, yeah, that's basically what Datadog is. I don't know if I've missed anything. Okay, cool. Yeah. And have you used Datadog much at all? Yeah, we use, well, uh, the team that I'm in, I'm in um, candidate, sorry, I'm in front-end services, which sits on the candidate side of, this, of the business. And um, we use Datadog a lot for Canada Graph just to make sure like which parts of the graphs is breaking, um, where errors are coming from, any latency issues that we are experiencing. We also use it for uh, tracing. So that actually gets hooked up to, I don't know what APM stands for, if anyone knows. Tracing as in like when you put like a sheet of paper that's like more <laughs> yeah. see-through and kind of drawing. What exactly is, what is that. I, I don't know. <laughs> like tracing errors? Um, specifically when you hit another API, you want to know where that request ended up, how long it took, how it got there, like whether you had to go through a router, you had to go through some other stuff to get to the service you want to hit. Um and yeah, so that provides you like a view of your request's journey to the destination. So you can really see kind of an end-to-end -end journey from yeah. the starting user request to the end result, whether that's, say, successful or an error then through yeah. Datadog, if, if I'm understanding correctly. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we also use that, yeah. The journey of the hobbit, you can kind of... <laughs> Yeah, down down the rabbit hole or the hobbit hole, as it were. The hobbit hole, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Someone needs to make like a Datadog service but call it Alice. Yeah, oh, I yeah. like it. Going down the rabbit hole. Alice in Datadog land. It yeah. does feel like that sometimes when you have to track down something. <laughs> You're it going is down a rabbit hole. Like that. I think the thing that Datadog's most useful, uh, at least for what I found, is when you don't have logs to tell you where in the code something's going wrong or the issue's actually not happening inside your code, but your API is responding with errors because of some service that it's using and you can't get that information because you don't own it. So like if something in AWS is giving us errors, like Dynamo calls are failing or something like that, Datadog's the system that'll tell me, give me that indication because I can see retries happening and stuff like that. Cool. 
the greatest uh, function that Datadog serves for me is figuring out what's gone wrong when in a lack of logs. So if someone hasn't added in good logging within the application and I try and figure out what's gone wrong, that's where I always fall back to Datadog. I know I'm... I'm forever grateful that I have people in my team that are far more heavily passionate and invested in tracing and stuff like that. So we've got some pretty extensive dashboards that cover an entire array of stuff that is run by almost 20 different developers because we've got four squads within my team. So like my team... That's a lot of squads. Yeah. So my team is actually quite large and I, I operate within one squad of about five or six engineers within that team. And so we, we all share on-call so I don't know, I don't work on the other systems that are built by the other squads, but I need to be able to understand them to be able to support them. And Datadog is that tool that, you know, uh, if you can speak Datadog, it doesn't really matter how the application is built. You can understand what's going wrong with it, um, at least to some degree, and start to be able to ask the right questions so that you're not just going to someone and saying, hey, they've got a problem, here's a log, I need you to point me at the solution. You can at least drive to like, I know it's Dynamo related, and like, oh, well, we call Dynamo here, here, and here. So it's probably around there. That's where Datadog, I think, it's like the the argument that math is the universal language. Like if you can under, if you can speak tools, then it doesn't matter what languages the things are written in, as long as you can all speak the tool. That sounds really really cool. I know for the apply experience side, there's another aspect of Datadog which we use, which I find really really cool, and that's the synthetic testing side. So we we've definitely got some alerting and whatnot on on things like the graph, you know, for downstream services that we don't have direct control over or really knowledge about but we can be impacted by those services going down and then we have alerts and metrics in in datadog so we can find out really really early which is you know awesome from our team so we can be really really reactive as opposed to just kind of finding out down the line that ah oh, applications have been down for however long so the synthetic testing for us is really cool because you can mimic an end-to-end user test in production and that can just be a rolling test that runs every two minutes five minutes 20 minutes whatever cadence you want to aim for it it just runs then which is great and it logs in with a real username and password of you know a test account albeit but it then verifies something in production so the reason i really like this is if i look at one of our repos we've got unit tests we've got component tests we've maybe got some integration tests and we've got our build pipeline that whole thing's run and we're looking green we're like great but what if auth dies or what if the graph dies or an end service dies we don't have anything looking at that but with datadog not only our monitoring but our synthetic testing if there's something that our team isn't actively monitoring we can then be like oh hey an application failed to submit because there was an error and we know about it really really quickly then so those synthetic tests allow us to check the style they allow us to check that hey this this element does exist and while we're not looking at pixel perfect for example we're still verifying that yeah i should be able to log in and i should be able to you know uh, answer a questionnaire if there's a questionnaire for the application so it it kind of gives us this additional safety on something that's running in production which is really really cool to be able to do and then you know we we get all the the nice stuff of uh alerts and then if there's a failure it can go to pager duty and ping us so if something dies at 2 a.m., you know, for whatever reason we know about it. Yeah, I think being able to, like, visualise the life cycle of a request from the front end all the way through your back end systems is something that's drastically uh, underrated 
whenever I uh, fall back to looking at Datadog and like seeing the, like I said, the lifecycle of a request, I'm always uh, shocked why I don't spend more time looking through these things. It's like I'm here to see what's gone wrong with the system and suddenly I'm, I, it's obvious to me where our performance issues we've been talking about for five months are coming from. You can just see all these requests, like how long they're taking, how long they're taking, like these things could be batched, that kind of stuff. I think Datadog's like, I mean, any any of these tools that service that same um, function are absolutely vital. And it's one of the it's one of the things that I think, like we were talking about grads before, um, it's the skill that people avoid learning the most that I've seen is how to use these like support tools like if you want to know how to build something, people are all over an ID. They're all over new languages. But if you're like, hey, there's this really hot new tracing tool for like seeing how your application's working, seeing how it's underperforming and stuff like that. People are like, nah, no, I don't think I want to look at that right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting that people are experts at console log, but maybe not at debuggers. Like... Yep. Console log. <laughs> I, I can do that all day, every day. I just I find start. debugging in VS Code just a little bit of a hassle. Yeah. See, Those here's your break problem. Points disappear. You're using VS Code. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> Webstorm for life. Let's go. Yeah, come on. Start that Which ID. Which campaign you're in, William? I've used both. So when, yeah, I, I tried them both. I am, I'm more comfortable in VS Code. But I, I do see why... Yeah, why some of the JetBrain products are good because they they do set up so many things for you. Uh, I've just used VS Code for so long; like everything's set up for me already. Mm. So I don't want to have uh, just learning another program. Can't be bothered. I mean, I can get that, but just putting it out there, you can just debug in Chrome and Firefox pretty easily too. You know, like bare bones, and I do that half the time when I'm being lazy because it's like oh, I don't want to attach my IDE to the current web session. I just want to hit F12 and quickly check a file. Like if you've got source maps enabled when you're running locally, it's it's pretty trivial to debug with Chrome. Their debug is pretty good, I gotta say. I did that for the first time the other day. So we uh, we run uh, like knowledge sharing. We call them just book clubs in in our team. They're like open to any other team. It's it's just that we. They're not internal to our team, but our team runs them. Um, and one of them is the front end club. And uh, because I haven't done predominantly UI stuff and because of the tooling that, that Seek builds, um, it kind of protects us from the necessity to do some of these things as often as we might have to do if we were in a less well-defined environment. Um, and I was shocked at how much you can do with just the browser when like you're talking about interrogating your own code or you know you want to track an on-click event on a button or something like that and then you just go to wherever it is in the UI that you want to interact with it and click on it. Someone who's not, I would not call myself a UI dev, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty amazed. I also like, even as a back-end dev, it's been a while since I put breakpoints break in my code. Maybe that says something about like the quality of the code that we write that I haven't needed to like trace through the code and find the problem in a really, really long time. But yeah, it's been a while since I've had to use a breakpoint other than last week for the UI stuff. Wow. Have you guys ever used the debugger command? In the IDE? Or in the browser? In JavaScript, the debugger keyword. Oh, uh, yes. No. no, I have not. Never. I've No, I've put it in my code, and then I don't think I ever use it again. So if you put, if you put debugger colon in, right, and then open DevTools in Chrome, it will hit that and pause the execution, right? 
So you don't have to have a, a debugger attached externally, such as VS Code or IntelliJ or WebStorm or IDE of choice. If you want to use, you know, Atom, who knows if Vim can handle debugging? I don't know, but let's not go there. Text, TextPad? Can we... TextPad, why not? Yeah. Let's WordPad. I develop WordPad. exclusively in Microsoft Word. If you can't write code in Word, you're not coding. I like no. to paint all of my code, actually. MS Paint, yeah. let's do it. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you hit that debugger keyword and boom, it stops. Now, if you're looking at our linter, it will scream at you and be like, bro, why, why are you... <laughs> what you doing? <laughs> Get rid of that debugger. But seriously, it will it will hit that point and just stop executing. I, I can't remember when I first saw that, but when somebody showed me that, I was like... I'm sorry, what? Like, I don't have to try and muck about with the, the debugger correctly attaching to the process that's running. It's just like, no, 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 just hit F12 on Chrome and then boom, it'll hit that line and stop. So that's a, a really useful one to have in the toolkit. And because it's JavaScript, which, you know, our front ends and back ends and middleware kind of all run on, it's like, yeah, you can just whack debugger in and it'll hit, just pause execution whenever it hits that keyword. So that's a fun little bite of information for the day. So is that... Because uh, you're talking about UI debugging, right? It will debug any TypeScript that's executing. So if you are running a Node.js service, you know, um, on a headless browser and you have attached your IDE to that, which you can then debug, then it will pause on that. If you're doing it within the browser on a UI, it will pause on that. So it's got to be some process running that you can attach to. Yeah. So, so like you can have your graph client running locally and then be hitting it from your UI and it'll freeze debug in the graph? No, because it's not the UI that's... So if your UI is hitting your endpoint, yes, but it's it's where it's attached to. So for example, if, if I'm running the graph locally, and I say the graph, what, what is the graph you might say out An there. API locally, right? Right. That's essentially that's, what saying. That's what we're talking about, a, a GraphQL API locally. So I'm running an API locally, and I have a debugger attached to that, whether that's through WebStorm or whether that's through you know some other IDE or VS Code, and I've got this debugger attached, which means I can put in breakpoints, it means I can pause the execution of my program. If I have the debugger keyword there, whenever anything hits my API, whether that's a local UI pointing to that API, or something like Insomnia or a Postman, or if I just run a curl statement through a command line, it will then pause the execution of that program. So then we can debug it, we can look at our local state, we can modify our state in memory, which is always a good one, and then you can just hit play and go. And every time it hits that debugger keyword, it will pause the execution. So if you're in you know, uh, a render cycle, which you can do it, you can put it in the, the, the render bit of a functional component or a component in React, you're going to hit that a lot. Right, and that's going to be really tedious, and either your finger's going to break, or the you know refresh key, or the the continue button's going to break, but it will pause. So it's really really useful to be able to be like, I don't know when this is getting hit, so finding a an entry point, excuse me, an entry point in which to put a breakpoint in can be difficult. So sometimes you just like I'll whack debugger in there, and you know very much with our functional programming, you know we don't necessarily have a direct. Um, stack trace when we're talking about the UI land, you know, often it goes down some sort of internal rabbit hole long before it hits our component. So that debugger keyword, really, really useful. When when somebody first showed me that, it kind of blew me away and I was like, how have I not known about this for like however many years? Because that's a language independent thing, right? Like it doesn't matter, sorry, not language, it's an IDE independent thing. Yeah. You're saying like this is a tool that you could teach to someone like a grad and have them know it regardless of what IDE they choose to use. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, you don't even need an IDE 
You can do it in Chrome, you can do it in Edge, you can do it in IE, you can do it in Firefox. It will respect it. At least I'm pretty sure IE respects it. I mean, you know, what even is IE anymore? It's meant to be long dead, but... Well, I feel like uh, Bing Chat is going to do a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to revitalizing Microsoft's browser um, portfolio. Bing Chat. I mean, that is. Oh wait. What what, what is Bing Chat? Yeah, it's gonna be what is Bing Chat? You know about Bing Chat? No. Oh, it's ChatGPT's bigger, buffer, stronger brother. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's it's another um, is it LLM large language model. Yeah, it's another LLM AI like ChatGPT, um, but it is fully connected to the internet and. It's a bit more restricted as to who can access it. So Skynet? It's a little bit Skynet-y, yeah. It's, uh, it has a lot of ChatGPT's um, more well-known failings, um, but being fully connected to the internet, it does all the things people are complaining about ChatGPT not doing. Bing? Yeah, it's Bing Chat. What, like? Bing Chat. You've got to Bing it. So now it's like, you know, when, when the search engine age is over, because, like, we're not going to Google stuff anymore, right? What are you going to say? Am I going to chat it? Am yeah. I going to GPT it? Hey, like GPT. Bing it? It's the first time I've, I've always like kind of laughed. I mean, I think a lot of people have probably laughed at like the Bing dilemma, the, big fi- the Bing fiasco, but it, it actually feels natural to be like, oh, just Bing that. Wow. Yeah, it also feels natural to say, hey, I'll Google that. Yeah, right. I feel like that's it's more become natural. natural. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll just keep saying Google long after Google is dust. Isn't Bing the thing that uh, What's-His-Face said on um, Big Bang Theory? Bazinga. Oh, Bazinga. Bazinga. (laughs) That's what they should have called it. They should have called it Bazinga Chat. That's it. I mean, wow, search engines. Like, so what, Bing, Yahoo, Ask Jeeves, what was there, Alta Vista? Alta Vista, that was the search engine of choice. Uh, That's the search engine I grew up on. Alta Vista and uh, Ask Jeeves. Yeah. What is that? Pre-Google. Pre-Google. Before Google existed, yeah. Sounds like I need a a siesta after I search something. (laughs) (laughs) It is a little bit, does it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Yahoo and AltaVista, they were the big ones, the big search engine. Yahoo's still around, still kicking. I mean... Where'd Jeeves go, though? Did we ask him too many questions and he left? I don't know. But (laughs) you know what's really scary about this whole Bing chat thing? I mean, does that mean the Microsoft paperclip is coming back? Is that what I'm hearing? (laughs) It... I was thinking about this just the other week when I was listening to the GPT, the ChatGPT um, podcast session. It feels scarily like we are on the edge of an actually good uh, Microsoft Assistant. What was he called? Clippy? Clippy. Yeah. Clippy. Imagine, imagine Clippy, but actually it's just ChatGPT. I, I would actually be okay with that. I remember when I was at uni and I was studying AI, that's like what my partner and I were uh, doing our thesis in before we came to Seek. Uh, I was talking to people about how good it would be as a idealistic university student. Imagine if I made an AI that could tell you, like recognize when you weren't feeling good and like tell you to cheer up or like go drink some water and that kind of stuff. And I feel like five, six years later, we're actually really close to that. Surprisingly close to just having an assistant in your watch that you can just tell it to do stuff and it'll actually do meaningful things for you. In the world of AI, there's like a set of maybe less than a dozen major challenges and anyone that's like uh, big in the in the AI world will tell you that essentially solving these problems are how we figure out the cures for all the greatest illnesses that ever existed that we know of um, you know essentially once we solve these problems robots can do everything we can do but just so much better there's no point in us trying to do anything anymore and one of them is what you were just talking about then is uh, like the 
I can't remember the name of the problem, but it's being able to uh, operate within um, an infinite domain. Like there's infinite variables, like a person can appear or just mm. anything can happen. There's no, there's no rules. We aren't able to define the rules of the real world in a way that a computer can actually process in a meaningful amount of time. And so like that, that problem of like, how do you have a general purpose robot that can move around and bring you a coffee and deal with the randomness of, of reality um, that's such a major problem that they're still trying to solve. That's the uh, that's the golden egg, isn't it? Artificial general intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When something is a general AI, that's like the, that's Skynet basically. At that point, we don't need to teach it anymore. It can figure everything out on its own. So we've got BingNet. BingNet. Yep. BingNet. Well, because now it feels like they've coded all the robots with anxiety. Like <laughs> it sees a person, it just stops, <laughs> panics. Yeah. That's uh, better than running over the person. So. I th- I yeah. think so. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'd like a. I like a robot that can just stop and then freak out rather than just like bulldoze me over. When you're yeah. asking ChatGPT uh, very uh, deep philosophical questions and its answers are so good that it makes you really sit, sit back and, and think about what they've just said, I, 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 I think it's easy to understand how like the Google engineer was claiming that they are alive because, I mean, ultimately it's software that is extremely good at convincing you of exactly that. But it does it so well. It's so good at convincing you that it has feelings and opinions about its own like reason for existing. And that's that's when for me ChatGPT got really really weird and scary. Was when it started. You know, people who are experts in this stuff and have been researching it for a long time are starting to question. At what point do we say that it is alive? Like we say it's software and it's not alive. But at like if it's breaking the distinction for what is alive, then what do we do at that point? Yeah, why? Like, I've I've been freaked out about AI for years because it it scares me that we that we can't just put debugger in the middle of it and be like, what are you thinking right now? Like, that's that's scary. Uh, that we don't even know how this code even kind of how does it get to that endpoint? I mean, surely somebody knows, right? Just because we don't know, well, nobody knows. I remember I'm putting that out there. They did an experiment. I think it was OpenAI. Uh, I can't remember who they worked with, but they connected two of these LLMs together and they it took less than a minute. It was it might have been like five seconds. It was really fast. It, they built their own language that was more efficient than English, more efficient than any language that we could understand. And they were talking to each other in just like hieroglyphic, basically just mashes of text. And they were, they'd created their own language in like less than a minute and they were having entire conversations as the seconds went by and they had to literally unplug it because they were like, no, 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 whatever's happening, we don't know what's happening and that's a bad situation to be in. Yeah, so terrifying. imagine these two AI just like birthed a general AI just through the sheer power of their, I don't know, like that's the kind of stuff where experts are unplugging the machine because they don't know what's going on. It's crazy. That is pretty crazy. I mean, <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I even read somewhere that they they taught an AI uh, that they like put through a bunch of um, uh, like diagnoses uh, of like schizophrenia and and other like things that are v- very hard to diagnose mm. like as is because there's so many variables and they put through a whole bunch of data in and from the test that they it was like about ninety five percent accurate uh, like giving a diagnosis to some of the test cases, and they, they don't even know why. They're like, they can't even track how it put all those things together because mm. it just taught itself, and that's freaky. Because like, then we start to trust it, and then what if it's wrong? Yeah. And we're like, is it wrong, though? Like, how do we figure that out? We don't. 
we just we just keep on going. I mean, that's oof, some deep questions there, Will. So I guess is that going to end up in Datadog's hands eventually? Will we end up with you know a tool like Datadog that we're using that we go, hey, um, why did this request fail? And it goes and figures it out. Like, why is this service down? Like, is that? Do you think that's where we're going to end up with these things? I want to go to there. I want to be there, wherever there is, where I can just say, hey, D-Dog, uh, can you tell me what the hell's going on with my application? And it just turns around and tells me exactly what went wrong and where and takes me to the code and says, here's a PR to fix it. That's that's what I'm waiting for. Well, Do I we call it D-Dog? Can we officially call like, it's that? <laughs> Data Dog, D-Dog, yeah. I like it. I like it too. Just quicker. It is quicker. Sorry, I cut you off there. <laughs> oh, you're, you're all good. So I just like that you brought it back around. You're like, we've got to bring this back to Datadog. <laughs> Do you think the grads will be using Datadog with open AI? Yeah. Do you think the grads will be AI? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> AI grads. I mean, how do we teach them? How do yeah. we bring them We just board? push them to their limit a little bit yeah. and then back off. Yeah. So they don't snap. That's it. Because exactly. we don't want any Skynets on our hands. That's it. But yeah, we don't want AI with crushing anxiety. It's just or is it stops in the middle of trying to deliver software because it doesn't know how to deal with this other person doing the same code as yeah. them. <laughs> there was there was a one uh, recently they announced there there'd be some plugins available for ChatGPT in the future, but also I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw a video of a VS Code integration with ChatGPT. So you would have a little window you could click on where you could talk to it, but then select the code and have it explain it or do something to it. Now, for me, that's where ChatGPT becomes next level or these open you know, AI models because if it has knowledge of my code base and it's running locally and securely, and I say securely in that it's not talking to the internet, so we don't have to worry about proprietary software going out the door. If, you know, let's just say within the Seek internal network, we had a ChatGPT server that we pay for or whatever, to be able to have it, just explain my code to me or explain somebody else's code or to be able to select a bunch of code and say refactor this or write tests for it or just can, how do I center this box in CSS? Just center the box. That's 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 kind of what I'm waiting for. But it's also kind of scary to think that that might be a thing sooner rather than later. We talk about this stuff as devs. I think like that's one of the most recurring conversations, right, is this idea of being able to just ask ChatGPT to look at our compendium of code across any language and give you like reasonable solutions or a few options that are reasonable or just explain how it works, right? Think about how much time we spend teaching grads how to use our software and how to inter interact with our systems. We could have an LLM like ChatGPT generate that four-week course based on where our software state is today. And that's the thing is like we spend so much time and energy like keeping docs up to date. These are the things that I, I think about is like, how much time do we spend not writing code? We could be writing code. It will probably end up cleaning ChatGPT code up more or less. But the things that I think about is never having to write docs because that's the perfect use case for, it, for an LLM like ChatGPT. For me, I think in, in a software environment like this, scrape millions and millions of lines of code and then produce accurate up-to-date documentation and just run it every day so your docs are always up to date with links to the other systems that it's referring to and everything else. And written in a way that is most understandable by the general level of knowledge of someone who's working in technology. Like it's written to the audience and if you're like, oh, well, I need this to be for grads. This needs to be for grads. And it rewrites it in a much more base level or whatever, you know? That would be very cool. Yeah, just being able to ask 
ask a bot, like, how do I do this? Or just, yeah, just search. Thanks for listening to us today on Seek Bites. Hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you.